Miracles by C.S. Lewis Chapter 1 The Scope of This Book Those who wish to succeed must ask the right preliminary questions. Aristotle, Metaphysics In all my life I have met only one person who claims to have seen a ghost. And the interesting thing about the story is that that person disbelieved in the immortal soul before she saw the ghost and still disbelieves after seeing it. She says that what she saw must have been an illusion or a trick of the nerves. And obviously she may be right. Seeing is not believing. For this reason, the question whether miracles occur can never be answered simply by experience. Every event which might claim to be a miracle is, in the last resort, something presented to our senses, something seen, heard, touched, smelled, or tasted. And our senses are not infallible. If anything extraordinary seems to have happened, we can always say that we have been the victims of an illusion. If we hold a philosophy which excludes the supernatural, this is what we shall always say. What we learn from experience depends on the kind of philosophy we bring to experience. It is therefore useless to appeal to experience before we have settled, as well as we can, the philosophical question. If immediate experience cannot prove or disprove the miraculous, still less can history do so. Many people think one can decide whether a miracle occurred in the past by examining the evidence according to the ordinary rules of historical inquiry. But the ordinary rules cannot be worked until we have decided whether miracles are possible, and if so, how probable they are. For if they are impossible, then no amount of historical evidence will convince us. If they are possible but immensely improbable, then only mathematically demonstrative evidence will convince us. And since history never provides that degree of evidence for any event, history can never convince us that a miracle occurred. If, on the other hand, miracles are not intrinsically improbable, then the existing evidence will be sufficient to convince us that quite a number of miracles have occurred. The result of our historical inquiries thus depends on the philosophical views which we have been holding before we even began to look at the evidence. This philosophical question must therefore come first. Here is an example of the sort of thing that happens if we omit the preliminary philosophical task and rush on to the historical. In a popular commentary on the Bible, you will find a discussion of the date at which the fourth gospel was written. The author says it must have been written after the execution of St. Peter because in the fourth gospel, Christ is presented as predicting the execution of St. Peter. A book, thinks the author, cannot be written before events which it refers to. Of course it cannot, unless real predictions ever occur. If they do, then this argument for the date is in ruins, and the author has not discussed at all whether real predictions are possible. He takes it for granted, perhaps unconsciously, that they are not. Perhaps he is right, but if he is, he has not discovered this principle by historical inquiry. He has brought his disbelief in predictions to his historical work, so to speak, ready-made. Unless he had done so, his historical conclusion about the date of the fourth gospel could not have been reached at all. His work is therefore quite useless to a person who wants to know whether predictions occur. The author gets to work only after he has already answered that question in the negative, and on grounds which he never communicates to us. This book is intended as a preliminary to historical inquiry. I am not a trained historian, and I shall not examine the historical evidence for the Christian miracles. My effort is to put my readers in a position to do so. It is no use going to the texts until we have some idea about the possibility or probability of the miraculous. Those who assume that miracles cannot happen are merely wasting their time by looking into the texts. We know in advance what results they will find, for they have begun by begging the question. Chapter 2. The Naturalist and the Supernaturalist Gracious, exclaimed Mrs. Snip, and is there a place where people venture to live above ground? I never heard of people living underground, replied Tim, before I came to Giant Land. Came to Giant Land, cried Mrs. Snip. Why, isn't everywhere Giant Land? Roland Quiz, Giant Land, Chapter 32. 
I use the word miracle to mean an interference with nature by supernatural power. Unless there exists, in addition to nature, something else which we may call the supernatural, there can be no miracles. Some people believe that nothing exists except nature. I call these people naturalists. Others think that, besides nature, there exists something else. I call them supernaturalists. Our first question, therefore, is whether the naturalists or the supernaturalists are right. And here comes our first difficulty. Before the naturalist and the supernaturalist can begin to discuss their difference of opinion, they must surely have an agreed definition both of nature and of supernature. But unfortunately, it is almost impossible to get such a definition. Just because the naturalist thinks that nothing but nature exists, the word nature means to him merely everything, or the whole show, or whatever there is. And if that is what we mean by nature, then of course nothing else exists. The real question between him and the supernaturalist has evaded us. Some philosophers have defined nature as what we perceive with our five senses. But this also is unsatisfactory, for we do not perceive our own emotions in that way, and yet they are presumably natural events. In order to avoid this deadlock, and to discover what the naturalist and the supernaturalist are really differing about, we must approach our problem in a more roundabout way. I begin by considering the following sentences. 1. Are those his natural teeth or a set? 2. The dog in his natural state is covered with fleas. 3. I love to get away from tilled lands and meddled roads and be alone with nature. 4. Do be natural. Why are you so affected? 5. It may have been wrong to kiss her, but it was very natural. A common thread of meaning in all these usages can easily be discovered. The natural teeth are those which grow in the mouth. We do not have to design them, make them, or fit them. The dog's natural state is the one he will be in if no one takes soap and water and prevents it. The countryside where nature reigns supreme is the one where soil, weather, and vegetation produce their results unhelped and unimpeded by man. Natural behavior is the behavior which people would exhibit if they were not at pains to alter it. The natural kiss is the kiss which will be given if moral or prudential considerations do not intervene. In all the examples, nature means what happens of itself, or of its own accord, what you do not need to labor for, what you will get if you take no measures to stop it. The Greek word for nature, phusis, is connected with the Greek verb for to grow, Latin natura, with the verb to be born. The natural is what springs up, or comes forth, or arrives, or goes on, of its own accord. The given, what is there already, the spontaneous, the unintended, the unsolicited. What the naturalist believed is that the ultimate fact, the thing you can't go behind, is a vast process in space and time which is going on of its own accord. Inside that total system, every particular event, such as your sitting reading this book, happens because some other event has happened, in the long run, because the total event is happening. Each particular thing, such as this page, is what it is because other things are what they are, and so, eventually, because the whole system is what it is. All the things and events are so completely interlocked that no one of them can claim the slightest independence from the whole show. None of them exists on its own, or goes on of its own accord, except in the sense that it exhibits, at some particular place and time, that general existence on its own, or behavior of its own accord, which belongs to nature, the great total interlocked event as a whole. Thus no thoroughgoing naturalist believes in free will, for free will would mean that human beings have the power of independent action, the power of doing something more or other than what was involved by the total series of events. And any such separate power of originating events is what the naturalist denies. Spontaneity, originality, action on its own, is a privilege reserved for the whole show, what he calls nature. The supernaturalist agrees with the naturalist that there must be something which exists in its own right, some basic fact whose existence it would be nonsensical to try to explain because this fact is itself the ground or starting point of all explanations. But he does not identify this fact with the whole show. 
He thinks that things fall into two classes. In the first class, we find either things, or more probably, one thing which is basic and original, which exists on its own. In the second, we find things which are merely derivative from that one thing. The one basic thing has caused all the other things to be. It exists on its own. They exist because it exists. They will cease to exist if it ever ceases to maintain them in existence. They will be altered if it ever alters them. The difference between the two views might be expressed by saying that naturalism gives us a democratic, supernaturalism a monarchical picture of reality. The naturalist thinks that the privilege of being on its own resides in the total mass of things, just as in a democracy sovereignty resides in the whole mass of the people. The supernaturalist thinks that this privilege belongs to some things or, more probably, one thing and not to others, just as, in a real monarchy, the king has sovereignty and the people have not. And just as, in a democracy, all citizens are equal, so for the naturalist, one thing or event is as good as another, in the sense that they are all equally dependent on the total system of things. Indeed, each of them is the only way in which the character of that total system exhibits itself at a particular point in space and time. The supernaturalist, on the other hand, believes that the one original or self-existent thing is on a different level from, and more important than, all other things. At this point, a suspicion may occur that supernaturalism first arose from reading into the universe the structure of monarchical societies. But then, of course, it may with equal reason be suspected that naturalism has arisen from reading into it the structure of modern democracies. The two suspicions thus cancel out and give us no help in deciding which theory is more likely to be true. They do indeed remind us that supernaturalism is the characteristic philosophy of a monarchical age and naturalism of a democratic, in the sense that supernaturalism, even if false, would have been believed by the great mass of unthinking people 400 years ago, just as naturalism, even if false, will be believed by the great mass of unthinking people today. Everyone will have seen that the one self-existent thing, or the small class of self-existent things, in which supernaturalists believe, is what we call God or the gods. I propose for the rest of this book to treat only that form of supernaturalism which believes in one God, partly because polytheism is not likely to be a live issue for most of my readers, and partly because those who believed in many gods very seldom, in fact, regarded their gods as creators of the universe and as self-existent. The gods of Greece were not really supernatural in the strict sense which I am giving to that word. They were products of the total system of things and included within it. This introduces an important distinction. The difference between naturalism and supernaturalism is not exactly the same as the difference between belief in a god and disbelief. Naturalism, without ceasing to be itself, could admit a certain kind of god. The great interlocking event called nature might be such as to produce at some stage a great cosmic consciousness, an indwelling god arising from the whole process as human mind arises, according to the naturalists, from human organisms. A naturalist would not object to that sort of god. The reason is this. Such a god would not stand outside nature or the total system, would not be existing on its own. It would still be the whole show which was the basic fact, and such a god would merely be one of the things, even if he were the most interesting, which the basic fact contained. What naturalism cannot accept is the idea of a god who stands outside nature and made it. We are now in a position to state the difference between the naturalist and the supernaturalist despite the fact that they do not mean the same by the word nature. The naturalist believes that a great process, or becoming, exists on its own in space and time, and that nothing else exists, what we call particular things and events being only the parts into which we analyze the great process or the shapes which that process takes at given moments and given points in space. This single, total reality he calls nature. The supernaturalist believes that one thing exists on its own and has produced the framework of space and time and the procession of systematically connected events which fill them. This framework and this filling he calls nature. It may or may not be the only reality which the one primary thing has produced. There might be other systems in addition to the one we call nature. In that sense, there might be several natures. 
This conception must be kept quite distinct from what is commonly called plurality of worlds, that is, different solar systems or different galaxies, island universes existing in widely separated parts of a single space and time. These, however remote, would be parts of the same nature as our own sun. It and they would be interlocked by being in relations to one another, spatial and temporal relations, and causal relations as well. And it is just this reciprocal interlocking within a system which makes it what we call a nature. Other natures might not be spatio-temporal at all, or if any of them were, their space and time would have no spatial or temporal relation to ours. It is just this discontinuity, this failure of interlocking, which would justify us in calling them different natures. This does not mean that there would be absolutely no relation between them. They would be related by their common derivation from a single supernatural source. They would, in this respect, be like different novels by a single author. The events in one story have no relation to the events in another, except that they are invented by the same author. To find the relation between them, you must go right back to the author's mind. There is no cutting across from anything Mr. Pickwick says in Pickwick Papers to anything Mrs. Gamp hears in Martin Chuzzlewit. Similarly, there would be no normal cutting across from an event in one nature to an event in any other. By a normal relation, I mean one which occurs in virtue of the character of the two systems. We have to put in the qualification normal because we do not know in advance that God might not bring two natures into partial contact at some particular point. That is, he might allow selected events in the one to produce results in the other. There would thus be, at certain points, a partial interlocking. But this would not turn the two natures into one, for the total reciprocity which makes a nature would still be lacking, and the spasmodic interlocking would arise not from what either system was in itself, but from the divine act which was bringing them together. If this occurred, each of the two natures would be supernatural in relation to the other. But the fact of their contact would be supernatural in a more absolute sense. Not as being beyond this or that nature, but beyond any and every nature. It would be one kind of miracle. The other kind would be divine interference, not by the bringing together of two natures, but simply. All this is, at present, purely speculative. It by no means follows from supernaturalism that miracles of any sort do in fact occur. God, the primary thing, may never in fact interfere with the natural system he has created. If he has created more natural systems than one, he may never cause them to impinge on one another. But that is a question for further consideration. If we decide that nature is not the only thing there is, then we cannot say in advance whether she is safe from miracles or not. There are things outside her. We do not yet know whether they can get in. The gates may be barred, or they may not. But if naturalism is true, then we do know in advance that miracles are impossible. Nothing can come into nature from the outside because there is nothing outside to come in, nature being everything. No doubt, events which we in our ignorance should mistake for miracles might occur, but they would in reality be, just like the commonest events, an inevitable result of the character of the whole system. Our first choice, therefore, must be between naturalism and supernaturalism. Chapter 3. The Self-Contradiction of the Naturalist We cannot have it both ways, and no sneers at the limitations of logic. Amend the Dilemma. I. A. Richards, Principles of Literary Criticism if naturalism is true, every finite thing or event must be, in principle, explicable in terms of the total system. I say explicable in principle because of course we are not going to demand that naturalists at any given moment should have found the detailed explanation of every phenomenon. Obviously, many things will only be explained when the sciences have made further progress. But if naturalism is to be accepted, we have a right to demand that every single thing should be such that we see, in general, how it could be explained in terms of the total system. If any one thing exists which is of such a kind that we see in advance the impossibility of ever giving it that kind of explanation, then naturalism would be in ruins. If necessities of thought force us to allow to any one thing any degree of independence from the total system, 
if any one thing makes good a claim to be on its own, to be something more than an expression of the character of nature as a whole, then we have abandoned naturalism. For by naturalism we mean the doctrine that only nature, the whole interlock system, exists. And if that were true, everything and event would, if we knew enough, be explicable without remainder, no heel taps, as a necessary product of the system. The whole system being what it is, it ought to be a contradiction in terms if you were not reading this book at the moment, and, conversely, the only cause why you are reading it ought to be that the whole system, at such and such a place and hour, was bound to take that course. One thread against strict naturalism has recently been launched on which I myself will base no argument, but which it will be well to notice. The older scientists believed that the smallest particles of matter moved according to strict laws, in other words, that the movements of each particle were interlocked with the total system of nature. Some modern scientists seem to think, if I understand them, that this is not so. They seem to think that the individual unit of matter, it would be rash to call it any longer a particle, moves in an indeterminate or random fashion, moves, in fact, on its own or of its own accord. The regularity which we observe in the movements of the smallest visible bodies is explained by the fact that each of these contains millions of units and that the law of averages therefore levels out the idiosyncrasies of the individual unit's behavior. The movement of one unit is incalculable, just as the result of tossing a coin once is incalculable. The majority movement of a billion units can, however, be predicted just as, if you tossed a coin a billion times, you could predict a nearly equal number of heads and tails. Now it will be noticed that if this theory is true, we have really admitted something other than nature. If the movements of the individual units are events on their own, events which do not interlock with all the other events, then these movements are not part of nature. It would be, indeed, too great a shock to our habits to describe them as supernatural. I think we should have to call them subnatural. But all our confidence that nature has no doors and no reality outside herself for doors to open on would have disappeared. There is apparently something outside her, the subnatural. It is indeed from this subnatural that all events and all bodies are, as it were, fed into her. And clearly, if she thus has a back door opening on the subnatural, it is quite on the cards that she also may have a front door opening on the supernatural, and events might be fed into her at that door too. I have mentioned this theory because it puts in a fairly vivid light certain conceptions which we shall have to use later on. But I am not, for my own part, assuming its truth. Those who, like myself, have had a philosophical rather than a scientific education find it almost impossible to believe that the scientists really mean what they seem to be saying. I cannot help thinking they mean no more than that the movements of individual units are permanently incalculable to us, not that they are in themselves random and lawless. And even if they mean the latter, a layman can hardly feel any certainty that some new scientific development may not tomorrow abolish this whole idea of a lawless subnature, for it is the glory of science to progress. I therefore turn willingly to other ground. It is clear that everything we know, beyond our own immediate sensations, is inferred from those sensations. I do not mean that we begin as children by regarding our sensations as evidence, and thence arguing consciously to the existence of space, matter, and other people. I mean that if, after we are old enough to understand the question, our confidence in the existence of anything else, say the solar system or the Spanish Armada, is challenged, our argument in defense of it will have to take the form of inferences from our immediate sensations. Put in its most general form, the inference would run, Since I am presented with colors, sounds, shapes, pleasures, and pains, which I cannot perfectly predict or control, and since the more I investigate them, the more regular their behavior appears, therefore there must exist something other than myself, and it must be systematic. Inside this very general inference, all sorts of special trains of inference lead us to more detailed conclusions. We infer evolution from fossils. We infer the existence of our own brains from what we find inside the skulls of other creatures like ourselves in the dissecting room. All possible knowledge, then, depends on the validity of reasoning. If the feeling of certainty which we express by words like must be and therefore and since 
is a real perception of how things outside our minds really must be, well and good. But if this certainty is merely a feeling in our own minds, and not a genuine insight into realities beyond them, if it merely represents the way our minds happen to work, then we can have no knowledge. Unless human reasoning is valid, no science can be true. It follows that no account of the universe can be true unless that account leaves it possible for our thinking to be a real insight. A theory which explained everything else in the whole universe but which made it impossible to believe that our thinking was valid would be utterly out of court. For that theory would itself have been reached by thinking, and if thinking is not valid, that theory would, of course, be itself demolished. It would have destroyed its own credentials. It would be an argument which proved that no argument was sound, a proof that there are no such things as proofs, which is nonsense. We must believe in the validity of rational thought, and we must not believe in anything inconsistent with its validity. But we can believe in the validity of thought only under certain conditions. Consider the following sentences. 1. He thinks that dog dangerous because he has often seen it muzzled and he has noticed that messengers always try to avoid going to that house. 2. He thinks that dog dangerous because it is black and ever since he was bitten by a black dog in childhood, he has always been afraid of black dogs. Both sentences explain why the man thinks as he does, but the one explanation substantiates the value of his thought and the other wholly discredits it. Why is it that to discover the cause of a thought sometimes damages its credit and sometimes reinforces it? Because the one cause is a good cause and the other a bad cause? But the man's complex about black dogs is not a bad cause in the sense of being a weak or inefficient one. If the man is in a sufficiently pathological condition, it may be quite irresistible and, in that sense, as good a cause for his belief as the earth's revolution is for day and night. The real difference is that in the first instance, the man's belief is caused by something rational, by argument from observed facts, while in the other it is caused by something irrational, association of ideas. We may in fact state it as a rule that no thought is valid if it can be fully explained as the result of irrational causes. Every reader of this book applies this rule automatically all day long. When a sober man tells you that his house is full of rats or snakes, you attend to him. If you know that his belief in the rats and snakes is due to delirium tremens, you do not even bother to look for them. If you even suspect an irrational cause, you begin to pay less attention to a man's beliefs. Your friend's pessimistic view of the European situation alarms you less when you discover that he is suffering from a bad liver attack. Conversely, when we discover a belief to be false, we then first look about for irrational causes. I was tired, I was in a hurry, I wanted to believe it. The whole disruptive power of Marxism and Freudianism against traditional beliefs has lain in their claim to expose irrational causes for them. If any Marxist is reading these lines at this moment, he is murmuring to himself, all this argument really results from the fact that the author is a bourgeois. In fact, he is applying the rule I have just stated. Because he thinks that my thoughts result from an irrational cause, he therefore discounts them. All thoughts which are so caused are valueless. We never, in our ordinary thinking, admit any exceptions to this rule. Now, it would clearly be preposterous to apply this rule to each particular thought as we come to it, and yet not to apply it to all thoughts taken collectively, that is, to human reason as a whole. Each particular thought is valueless if it is the result of irrational causes. Obviously, then, the whole process of human thought, what we call reason, is equally valueless if it is the result of irrational causes. Hence, every theory of the universe which makes the human mind a result of irrational causes is inadmissible, for it would be a proof that there are no such things as proofs, which is nonsense. But naturalism, as commonly held, is precisely a theory of this sort. The mind, like every other particular thing or event, is supposed to be simply the product of the total system. It is supposed to be that and nothing more, to have no power whatever of going on of its own accord. And the total system is not supposed to be rational. All thoughts whatever are therefore the results of irrational causes, and nothing more than that. 
The finest piece of scientific reasoning is caused in just the same irrational way as the thoughts a man has because a bit of bone is pressing on his brain. If we continue to apply our rule, both are equally valueless. And if we stop applying our rule, we are no better off. For then the naturalist will have to admit that thoughts produced by lunacy or alcohol or by the mere wish to disbelieve in naturalism are just as valid as his own thoughts. What is sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. The naturalist cannot condemn other people's thoughts because they have irrational causes and continue to believe his own which have, if naturalism is true, equally irrational causes. The shortest and simplest form of this argument is that given by Professor J.B.S. Haldane in Possible Worlds. He writes, quote, If my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true, and hence I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms, end quote. If I have avoided this form of the argument, this is because I do not wish to have on our hands at this stage so difficult a concept as matter. The trouble about atoms is not that they are material, whatever that may mean, but that they are, presumably, irrational. Or even if they were rational, they do not produce my beliefs by honestly arguing with me and proving their point, but by compelling me to think in a certain way. I am still subject to brute force. My beliefs have irrational causes. An attempt to get out of the difficulty might be made along the following lines. Even if thoughts are produced by irrational causes, still it might happen by mere accident that some of them were true, just as the black dog might, after all, have been really dangerous, though the man's reason for thinking it so was worthless. Now individuals whose thoughts happened in this accidental way to be truer than other people's would have an advantage in the struggle for existence. And if habits of thought can be inherited, natural selection would gradually eliminate or weed out the people who have the less useful types of thought. It might therefore have come about by now that the present type of human mind, the sort of thought that has survived, was tolerably reliable. But it won't do. In the first place, this argument works only if there are such things as heredity, the struggle for existence, and elimination. But we know about these things, certainly about their existence in the past, only by inference. Unless therefore you start by assuming inference to be valid, you cannot know about them. You have to assume that inference is valid before you can even begin your argument for its validity. And a proof which sets about by assuming the thing you have to prove is rubbish. But waive that point. Let heredity and the rest be granted. Even then you cannot show that our processes of thought yield truth unless you are allowed to argue, because a thought is useful, therefore it must be at least partly true. But this is itself an inference. If you trust it, you are once more assuming that very validity which you set out to prove. In order to avoid endless waste of time, we must recognize once and for all that this will happen to any argument whatever which attempts to prove or disprove the validity of thought. By trusting to argument at all, you have assumed the point at issue. All arguments about the validity of thought make a tacit and illegitimate exception in favor of the bit of thought you are doing at that moment. It has to be left outside the discussion and simply believed in, in the simple old-fashioned way. Thus the Freudian proves that all thoughts are merely due to complexes, except the thoughts which constitute this proof itself. The Marxist proves that all thoughts result from class conditioning, except the thought he is thinking while he says this. It is therefore always impossible to begin with any other data whatever, and from them to find out whether thought is valid. You must do exactly the opposite, must begin by admitting the self-evidence of logical thought, and then believe all other things only insofar as they agree with that. The validity of thought is central, all other things have to be fitted in round it as best they can. Some naturalists whom I have met attempt to escape by saying that there is no ground for believing our thoughts to be valid, and that this does not worry them in the least. We find that they work, it is said, and we admit that we cannot argue from this that they give us a true account of any external reality, but we don't mind. We are not interested in truth. Our habits of thought seem to enable humanity to keep alive, and that is all we care about. One is tempted to reply that every free man wants truth as well as life, that a mere life addict is no more respectable than a cocaine addict. But opinions may differ on that point. 
The real answer is that unless the naturalists put forward naturalism as a true theory, we have, of course, no dispute with them. You can argue with a man who says, rice is unwholesome, but you neither can nor need argue with a man who says, rice is unwholesome, but I'm not saying this is true. I feel also that this surrender of the claim to truth has all the air of an expedient adopted at the last moment. If the naturalists do not claim to know any truths, ought they not to have warned us rather earlier of the fact? For really, from all the books they have written, in which the behavior of the remotest nebula, the shyest photon, and the most prehistoric man are described, one would have got the idea that they were claiming to give a true account of real things. The fact surely is that they nearly always are claiming to do so. The claim is surrendered only when the question discussed in this chapter is pressed, and when the crisis is over, the claim is tacitly resumed.